Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. It's new and exciting in your world this weekend. CNN recently reported something on the federal debt I see from time to time. It's worth mentioning because it's incorrect. Here's what CNN says. If government estimates are on the mark, the country's total debt owed to investors, which is essentially the sum of annual deficits that have accrued over the years, will have outpaced the size of the economy, coming in at nearly 102% of GDP. CNN goes on to note that the last time the federal debt was this large relative to the economy was during World War II, when the debt was 106% of GDP. Here's the thing. There are two measures relevant to the federal debt. The term CNN uses, debt owed to investors, isn't one of them. Unfortunately, they sound similar. Debt held by the public and public debt outstanding. Debt held by the public is over $21 trillion. That excludes money the federal government has borrowed from Social Security and government pensions, called intragovernmental debt. Public debt outstanding, on the other hand, is over $27 trillion. That's the total amount the government owes. So when CNN says the debt will be 102% of GDP, it's ignoring the intragovernmental debt. If we include the intragovernmental debt, the federal debt is actually 135% of GDP. Which I'm guessing is a far cry down the road from anything we've ever had That before. is way, way beyond what we had even at the height of World War II. Now, there's some disagreement as to whether money the government has borrowed from Social Security and government pensions should be counted. Those in favor of counting it say that it's debt just like any other debt. Those against say it's money the government borrowed from itself and so shouldn't be counted. Now, here's the uncomfortable reality. Anyone who says we should exclude intragovernmental debt is really saying that the government should default on Social Security and pension obligations, because apart from making good on the money that's owed, that's the only way to make that part of the debt go away. You're going to hear a lot of people squealing and wailing about the accounting here, and they're going to be exactly the same people who would be very much against shafting people on their Social Security. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of cognitive dissonance as they try to reconcile these two positions, but these two positions cannot be reconciled. You know, often hard things are like that. And it's, I think, about time people started realizing that this is a very hard thing, that we've painted ourselves into a deep corner. and It's going to take a lot of work to get out of it. So much, I suspect, that we won't. I look back historically at the numbers. It's actually interesting. It's kind of like a step function through time. From 1970 through 1985, the total federal debt was about 35% of GDP, 35% of the economy. That's 1970 to 1985. Then you get into 1990. From 1990 through 2008, it almost doubles to 60% of GDP. And then from 2012 to 2019, it's about 100% of GDP. And now, of course, this year with the pandemic, the government's getting it on two fronts. On the one side, it's borrowed way more money than it usually does. And on the other, GDP is way lower than it usually is. And so that brings us to the current 135%. Is that going to come down when the lockdown lifts? Yeah, I think so. But I have a hard time imagining us being back below 100%. Right. You mean ever? Ever, yes. 
Well, believe it or not, Ant, I also want to talk about money, at least after a fashion. We've been dipping our toes in the cryptocurrency pool a little bit. We had a guest on a couple of weeks ago to talk about it. We got all the hate mail from all of you about that episode for reasons we can't quite understand (laughs) yet. But nonetheless, we keep pushing down this road just a little bit. Why? Because it's kind of fascinating. It's just interesting what people might come up with on their own, apart from governmental intervention, in terms of a currency. So, Ant, I want you to think about Facebook. I don't know if you know this. Facebook has its own currency in the offing. Are you aware of this? No, I know that they start some service by which you can move money via Facebook. I did it once. I don't know of anybody else who uses it. But this is actually their own currency. In a world filled with PayPal and Venmo, it's ever more important that Facebook get in on that market. So I'm just going to leave that off to the side. I want to say up front that they handle that exactly the way Facebook handles everything, poorly and behind the curve. Right. So here they come with a cyber currency. They're referring to it as Libra, and it's a stable coin. So we'll have to you know, unpack that on our own time later. Go look up Stablecoin if you want, and I'll put the story here in the show notes for you. And here's where it really gets great. PayPal's got this plan. They're going to get into this market probably way too late. And don't you know who came around but the G7? And the G7 declared that Libra must not start until it's properly regulated by what? The G7. Uh, Of course. And given Facebook's heavy hand, I'm sure they're more than happy to have G7 regulated. Yeah, maybe so, but I will probably never accept that for anything, given how little trust I have in Facebook or the G7, right? However you want to cut this, I see villains. So G7, for those who aren't familiar, that's the coalition of seven large economies. I would imagine that there's pressure within G7 to found a global currency, They may see Facebook as a foot in the door here. But I mean, come on, we already have government regulated currencies. It's precisely those that have brought us to the private currencies. Let me read to you the important paragraph. Are you ready? Because I I suspect you're going to have a lot to say about any number of things here. The draft prepared for a meeting of finance ministers and central bankers of the United States, Canada, Japan, Germany, France, Italy, and Britain said digital payments could improve access to financial services, cut inefficiencies and costs. But such payment services had to be appropriately supervised and regulated so they would not undermine financial stability, consumer protection, privacy, taxation, or cybersecurity, the draft statement seen by Reuters said. Right. The one thing they've left out is they want the ability to inflate that currency. Well, and look, adding this list of nations to a global list of the ones we're going to have to pay attention to when we actually get a currency off the ground. Every one of these countries has a currency that's not particularly working all that well. And they're going to be the ones to pass judgment. Give me Bitcoin every day of the week. And I think Bitcoin's probably got real problems that may be endemic to the thing. But the problems it has, and indeed the problems every cyber currency has, are not the same as government-backed currencies in any way, shape, or form. If you leave governments in control of a new currency, you're just going to get the same old government problems that all the fiat currencies already have. Yep, that's absolutely right. So what the hell is wrong with these people in the first place? And why on earth would anybody listen to them without laughter? This is just silly. But of course, 
we hold the biggest foolishness for the foolishness of the week. And you have to know that whatever's coming up next <laughs> has got to be even better. dumber than what you just heard. <laughs> it's even dumber than what just happened. So, Ant, what was the dumbest thing you saw last week? Because I'm guessing mine is better. What is the dumbest thing I saw? Well, I missed the vice presidential debates, so I'm sure I missed a lot of dumbness there. You didn't miss it. You and I agreed we would live tweet it, and then you said you had something else to do. You skipped out on it. You didn't miss anything. I had to go to bed. You left me you you left me hanging on a nasty hook where I had to watch that claptrap all by myself. But this is way dumber than that. We're going back to our fearless leader and big toe Donald Trump once again, who you might recall was at the Walter Reed Medical Facility when he got a, a case of the COVID. The COVID, yeah. And people were kind of mean-spirited about that. I don't think I was. I, I feel quite terrible for anybody who gets stuck with something like that, even him. But upon leaving Walter Reed, he had a plan, or at least an idea, that he really wanted to set in motion. He wanted to hobble out of Walter Reed as if he were still very, very sick. And then rip his shirt open, buttons flying everywhere to reveal a Superman t-shirt beneath it. Is this serious? I'm afraid it is. See, it's sad that no matter what I say about Donald Trump, that's a legitimate question. (laughs) Is that serious? Is always a legitimate question. And I could have made up five or six other things (laughs) that would have been at least as plausible as this. But here you go. He wanted to turn it into a TV moment where he could rip his shirt open and become Superman through his horde of adoring fans. You know, sometimes I wonder if the great lesson of our four years with Donald Trump is that maybe we actually don't need a president. Well, I I think that's fair. That's astounding. (laughs) I'm just wondering if don't need is the right verbiage or would be better off without. (laughs) Would be better off without. is Is somehow the words I should be putting together. But of course, every time I say the words Donald and Trump together, I get a raft of hate mail. But I'm not going to shrink from this. This is just ridiculous. But there's something seriously wrong here. When you think about what did we get? We got Donald Trump. What are we facing? We're facing Joe Biden. What did we dodge? We dodged Hillary Clinton. Like him or hate him, I think most people, most people, not all, most people could agree those three are not our best and brightest. And yet they're the ones that rose to the top of this process that we have. There's something markedly wrong with the process. Our process inevitably yields people who are not particularly up to the job. And that's happened from day one, right? Well, not day one. Day one gave us Washington. But starting with the Adams administration, you could kind of make this case. But what it's become, probably, I think, oh, in the last 20, 30 years, it's an office bereft of dignity. Yeah, that's correct. It should be more dignified than it is. And some of our most recent presidents have done better than others, Mm -hmm. but none of them have done as well as they should have. And that's about where I'm left on matters like this. And for people out there who scream and holler that it's one party or the other who makes this trouble, trust me, you're the problem. If you think one party or the other does only good and the other does only evil, you are the problem. It's time to maybe think that one through a little bit. I'm keenly aware that no one ever will. So I'll just keep pointing it out as a matter of sport. But I'm actually glad Trump didn't do this. And I wish to hell nobody had leaked it to the press. But we'll leave the story on the show notes for you. It would have been really funny. It would have been. 
I'm a little torn on this because you know how I like humor. <laughs> um, but this might have been too awful. To support us as we cast our pod, please wander over to patreon.com slash words and numbers, where for less than it is costing James to be furloughed from his university, you can help us keep the lights on and our mics hot. Or if you'd rather that James' mic weren't hot, throw in a couple of extra bucks and I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I, I could shut up if the if the number's big enough. I'll cheerfully <laughs> shut up. That'd be great. <laughs> I, Aunt, I've always said everybody has a price all the time, and that, uh, that even even I have a price all the time. But let's get to the matter at hand, shall we? I find myself horrifically confused here. I sit in Arizona. I wonder what's going on. I'm just confused. What's your source of confusion, James? Well, it seems that I have a trade deficit. You have a trade deficit. I think I do because I go to the grocery store, I buy food, but they get all the money. And then I go to the other stores that I frequent, music shops very typically, and I buy guitar strings, but they get all the money. Right. Yes, they have trade surpluses with you. They do, and I'm negative everywhere around the world that I look. There's one place you're positive, and that's with your employer. Oh, no, I guess, well, that's a little trickier than it should be right about now. <laughs> right. For those of you who don't know, I have been furloughed because of the COVID nastiness. So my employer has decided not to pay me for a couple of months now, but we'll take that up some other Somehow time. Somehow they do expect you to keep working. Yes, and as near as I can tell, at exactly the same pace. <laughs> right. A number of curiosities emerge all at once, but I take your point. I do have a favorable trade balance with my employer. That is, my employer gives me money, but I give that employer my labor. So to me, maybe that's more like a wash. When people talk about trade deficits or trade surpluses, they're looking at the dollars. Yeah. That's an error people make all over when they think about economics, is focusing on the dollars. It's errors from everything from trade surpluses and deficits to inequality. Right, because even where I started the grocery store, we were looking at the dollars I was paying. Yeah. And so on and so forth with every other entity I trade with. It's always about the dollars. Yeah, that's what people get fixated on. I say this repeatedly, and I don't think people really appreciate it. Dollars are simply a tool that we use to transfer ownership of goods and services. It's the goods and services that matter. Right, so maybe everybody should really be concentrating on those. Yeah, and that's the weird thing, because you get people saying things like, well, we should have communes where everybody works for free, and I grow vegetables, and you sew shirts, and I exchange vegetables for shirts. Well, that's exactly what's going on right now. We just use money to make the whole process flow much more smoothly. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to go live on a commune. How do I know this? There are no communes. But those that survive, survive because they're held together by something other than economic concerns. You'll get religious communes, for example. I think of the kibbutzim in Israel as sure. the great experiment in this sort of thing. And it failed. So too, everywhere else it's ever been tried. And I do absolutely love these people who put up these memes and signs in their businesses that say, wouldn't it be great if... I grew corn and you grew tomatoes and we traded. Right. But the invention of money gets around the problem of trading, right? Because if we had to wait for trades to manifest on both sides, we'd all go hungry. Yeah. But you throw money into the mix and people could say, all right, I'll sell my corn for money. And later when I want them, I will buy tortillas. And later when I want them, I will buy tomatoes. 
And yet we miss this all the time. Money is the great advance that we made as human beings. What money does is it makes storage and spoilage irrelevant. It makes storage and spoilage irrelevant because you can store up the dollars instead of the tomatoes. But it also solves this problem of the technical term is double coincidence of wants. But it boils down to if I'm an economist and I'm going to give lectures on economics, that's how I survive. Well, without money, I can only give lectures to people who have tomatoes and shirts and gasoline to give me an exchange. If your parents are coal miners and I don't need coal, then I'm sorry, but I can't waste my time giving you lectures because you've got nothing I want in exchange. Frankly, I don't get it. I've never really understood where the trade imbalancers came from. And when Trump ran for office, it got even more confounding to me because people who I think are otherwise quite intelligent, fall for this nonsense day in and day out. Yep. They think that somehow if China sends us more product than we send it, that somehow means China has the upper hand in all kinds of things, not just trade, but in politics and on and on and on. And a bunch of ridiculous assumptions get made as we wander towards those conclusions. But these are not stupid people making them. No, they're not stupid people, but this error they're making goes back many hundreds of years. There was a school of thought in economics hundreds of years ago called mercantilism. The idea with mercantilism is that the country is better off the more gold it can collect. The idea is export as much as you can to the rest of the world, get the rest of the world's gold, and the more gold you have, the better off your country is. And this was debunked again, hundreds of years ago, and yet it pops up again. We're no longer talking about gold, but it's the same phenomenon only with dollars replacing the gold. You and I have talked about this a number of times, but the U.S. dollar is not exactly a place you want to hang your hat anymore. But then if you take a look around at the rest of the world, there's probably no better answer in the fiat currencies. The trade deficit is in the news because our August trade deficit it's around $70 billion. It's the highest it's been since 2006. And of course, most economists would look at that and say, well, okay, who cares? But the media is all a Twitter about it. Yeah, and the politicians know exactly what to do with news like that. Right. It's presented as if somehow the United States is down $70 billion. No, we got $70 billion worth of goods and services in exchange for it. As long as we just never count the things we buy, but only the money we spend on those things, things are going to look real bad. Right. And it's just lunacy of the first rank, but think about it. Because the minute this starts happening, let's just use Trump as the great example. He doesn't exactly care about microeconomic theory. He doesn't understand what's going to happen next if you do this. What he cares about is getting votes. Okay, fair enough. But what happens when we throw tariffs on Chinese steel in order to protect our own steel producers here in the United States? Yeah, well, you do indeed protect the U.S. steel workers. There's no question about that. But it comes at a cost. What politicians will do is present it as if it's U.S. steel workers versus Chinese steel workers, and this tariff is going to protect the U.S. steel workers. And it's not. It's U.S. steel workers versus American farmers versus American car consumers. Why? Because the less steel we import from China, the less China is able to import wheat from us. And so the American right. wheat farmer has fewer customers. 
And when we impose tariffs on steel, steel becomes more expensive. And guess what? Well, that means things made with steel become more expensive. So now American car consumers are paying more for their cars. If you really think about it, we say this often on this podcast. If you want more of something, subsidize it. If you want less of something, tax it. When we take a look at tariffs, those are taxes. You can call them whatever you want. And politicians do call them whatever they want. But they are at root taxes. And they are taxes paid by Americans. That's absolutely right. And you're saying Americans, and I said Americans and Chinese. And I think a lot of people's misconceptions about trade come about because we use those terms. It's a shorthand. When we say America trades with China, America doesn't trade with China. People in the U.S. trade with people in China. It's no different than you going down to your local Walmart and you buy something from Walmart. That's an exchange between you and Walmart. We don't say that Tucson traded with Phoenix, right? It's James in the Phoenix Walmart. So too with America and China. And I don't know how we keep missing that, right? Because as the world gets smaller... And as people have come to trade, and they don't realize this is happening, they don't realize what this is, but we have individuals all over the United States trading with individuals all over China right now. How do I know this? Because I look at eBay listings for things that I want, and there's always a raft of Chinese sellers. Right. They tend to be cheaper than European or American sellers. They tend to be not as reliable with their shipping. Mm -hmm. And you start to take all of this into account, and maybe it's worth it, and maybe it's not. But almost every American I know has traded directly with a Chinese person in the last year. That's right. And that's what trade is. Trade policy is aiming at you in that transaction. And people think it's, no, 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 it's only for big, gigantic boats filled with steel. Not so much. It's that pen you want on eBay. It's those earplugs you bought on Amazon, these sorts of things. And when the tariff is on an input rather than the end product, for example, tariff on steel, you end up paying for that tariff without knowing that you're paying for the tariff. Because nowhere on the bill of sale does it say tariff 5%. It's just the cost of the car or the computer or whatever it is, is higher because of the tariff. And people are not so inclined to ask about higher prices. There seems to be a sweet spot where if you increase prices a certain percentage, most people are just going to let it go. If you get to another percentage, people are going to say, well, I probably can't do this anymore. And if you let it get a little higher than that, people think, I hate you people raising your prices. And the focus goes on the seller, the evil corporation. And the politicians are quite happy with that. They get away with imposing the tariff. They gain votes from imposing tariffs strategically, and they never get the heat for it. But here's something. And here's the thing. Good. And here's the thing. (laughs) But here's something. Shut up. (laughs) And here's the thing. Those tariffs that the Trump administration or any American administration, for that matter, would put on the market, you can point exactly to who those tariffs saved. Mm -hmm. In the instance of steel, they saved steel workers because steel was coming out of other markets much more cheaply. So tariffs here save steel workers. Who pays for them? And that's the question, because it's not the steelworkers who are paying for them. It's everybody else. Right. But everybody else is such a diffuse group of people that you can never point to one of them and say, you got fleeced $3.87 on the steel deal. 
That's right. Because they don't even perceive it. It happens in the background and then it disappears. So look at what we've got here. We've got a misunderstanding of trade, which yields out government action in the form of tariffs, which yields out people whose jobs were saved and people whose jobs were lost and people who paid an increase in prices. But we can't see in those last two groups who they are. It's much harder but they're there nonetheless. They are there. They're all over the country. But unless you can point to all of them and say, and these people all lost their jobs mm-hmm. because of you, which gets a little too complicated. You're not going to be able to ferret them out. But notice what happens here. Politicians have the ability here to talk about us versus them because we use this word trade and we use the word tariff when in fact what we call trade is no different than you going down to the local store and buying something. It's simply a purchase. And tariff is actually a tax, as you pointed out. But notice something interesting. Nobody gets upset about people in Arizona buying things that were manufactured in Texas. Nobody gets concerned. We don't even count that. Well, somebody counts it, but nobody's aware in the general populace of whether Arizona has a trade surplus or deficit with Texas. We don't even think that way. But that's no different than talking about the United States and China. All you've done is drawn a line on a map and said that transactions that cross this line, we're going to give a special name to. But as far as the economics is concerned, they're identical. It doesn't matter. Well, a trade is a trade is a trade. Yeah. And something interesting happens here because the movement on the one hand, on the right of the political spectrum with Trump and tariffs and so forth, is the same thing that you get on the left with the buy local thing. This push to buy things local is no different than Trump saying buy America. All you've done is drawn the line at a different place on the map. I think there are perfectly good reasons to buy local. I just want to get that on the table. So if I want farm fresh eggs and there's a guy in town who sells them, I'm buying my eggs from him. If there is a farmer's market where I can get tomatoes that are plucked at the height of their ripeness instead of like we get them in the store, I'm buying those because they're better. I'm willing to pay extra for a better product. But generically, thinking that buying local solves economic problems is idiocy of the first rank. What you're doing really is not buying local. That's not the motivation. Your motivation is to buy fresh. And to buy fresh, you have to buy local. That's for me. I think the broad sweep of people who I meet who say buy local is a thing, I don't think they consider it in those terms. They seem to want to cut out a lot of what they consider to be extraneous steps and just make the trade somehow. They don't seem to ever tell me why that's important. They seem to think that if we don't make that trade, that all the people who work here will go out of business. And that's really not correct. Well, you can see an argument if there's a local mom and pop shop and, you know, it's a smaller town. If I don't buy from them, they're going to go out of business. And I, because I live in the community, would rather that they don't go out of business. Okay, fine. I can see the argument for buying from them. But notice what's happening. You're buying from them because you're actually getting two products. You're getting what you buy at the store and you're getting the fact that the store persists in your community. And there are all kinds of things that I could get at Walmart that I would really rather get at a local shop because it comes with special information. And I'm thinking things like bicycle tire tubes. Mm -hmm. I could pick them off the rack at a Walmart, 
But if I go to a bike shop and I ask what I need, I'm going to get an answer. I'm going to get, well, this one's better than this one. This one costs more than this one. And I'm going to get an answer. And then I'm going to look at the guy and I'm going to say, how the hell do I put this on my bike? And he'll tell me. There's lots of products wrapped up in that. Where at Walmart, it's just the one. And I don't understand how people can't see this either. I want to go back for a minute to your opening about having a trade deficit with the local store. We talk about the United States having a trade deficit with China. And when you think about a trade deficit between specific countries, that clearly does not matter. And here's why. It could be the case, let's take three countries, U.S., China, and the U.K. The U.S. could have a trade deficit with China. China can have the exact same size trade deficit with the U.K., and the U.K. can have the exact same size trade deficit with the U.S. And what you've got is three countries that pairwise like that, U.S. versus China, China versus U.K., U.K. versus U.S., all have trade deficits. But if you add it up, nobody has a trade deficit because each country has a trade deficit with one party and a trade surplus with another. In that sense, a trade deficit with a single country has no meaning. However, it is possible to have in total, when you add up all the countries, a trade deficit, and the United States has that. When you add up all of our trades with all of our trading partners together, we end up spending more on foreign imports than foreigners spend on American exports. That's our trade deficit. But I claim that that still doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is because when you see all these dollars leaving the United States as we buy imports from foreigners, those dollars do come back. They don't come back in the form of foreigners purchasing American goods. They come back in the form of foreigners purchasing American stocks and bonds. They're purchasing financial instruments. And people wig out and they say, oh my God, the foreigners are going to buy up all of the American companies. Well, here's the cool thing. Countries export the things they're good at producing. And one of the things Americans are really good at producing is entrepreneurial activity. We're great entrepreneurs. Now, you can't sell entrepreneurial activity, but you can sell the product of entrepreneurial activity, and that's companies. And so here you have the Americans doing what they do, coming up with cool ideas and founding new companies, and sell them to the foreigners. Buy them. We'll make more. That's what we do. That's our export. When Anthony and I were children... I think I could speak for you, Anthony. We were inundated with horrified newsreaders telling us how Japan would one day own every right. acre of land in the United States. And it's just this scaremongering nonsense. Of course, that was never going to happen. And you start looking at all of these terrifying outcomes that people walk into every few years. They all share one thing. They're all divorced from reality and awfully silly. Well, and back then, when we were kids, what did people point to when they said the Japanese are going to buy up all the American companies? People would point to IBM and AT&T, right? The behemoths of American companies. What didn't they point to? They didn't point to Walmart. They didn't point to Amazon. They didn't point to Microsoft. They didn't point to Dell. Why? Those companies didn't exist. <laughs> That's right. We've created them since then. That's what we do. We create companies. It seems a little silly in retrospect, 
But the people who made the silly case back when are making an equally but different silly case now, yep. and nobody realizes it. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Nobody points at it and says, you people are out of your minds. And they are. They're out of their minds. I want every benefit of trade I can get. I love getting things from China at one-tenth the price of getting things out of, say, Switzerland. And one of the things that people say in response to that is, yeah, okay, fine, if it's a level playing field, but what if China's government is subsidizing Chinese exports to the U.S.? Well, that's not fair because the American companies can't compete with the Chinese imports into the U.S. because the Chinese government is subsidizing those products. Well, it's fair to the American consumer. Right. When was the last time you complained because Walmart was going to give you 50% off on some product? Where's that 50% off come from? It comes from Walmart's stockholders. They're going to take less of a dividend in exchange for you getting a lower price on your Walmart goods. Well, when China subsidizes its exports, that's China forcing its citizens through taxes to subsidize American purchases. And very few people take the long view here. They get all caught up in the short-term nonsense. They got worked into a frenzy, and then Donald Trump goes and does the things that Donald Trump goes and does. But I think tariffs might always, and in every case, be silly. I think so. I'm going to tread lightly because I could imagine somebody coming up with some esoteric example. But I would say 99.9% .9 of the cases, tariffs are a bad idea. I'm not looking to esoterica. I'm thinking about wartime. Different rules may apply then. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. And the data here is very clear. Countries that trade more have a much lower probability of going to war. And so in some sense, you could argue free trade is actually the antidote to war. I routinely say that, but I want to get back to it because I don't know if it's true simply or if it's true because nobody's really going to war anymore. I looked at a pretty detailed graph yesterday about all the wars that we've had since about 1900, and we're not having any anymore. Right. Not in the grand scheme of things. People are going to say, oh, you idiot, Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah, right. We've got military action there. But the war deaths are just a drop in the ocean, comparatively speaking. Oh, they're down like 95%. It's ridiculous. And maybe this is something we can get to next week. And I wonder if the observation that trading partners never go to war is just a natural outgrowth of not anybody's going to war anymore. I can make an argument as to why it should be the case that we don't go to war, and that is the more I trade with people in China, for example, the more my livelihood is tied up with them. And a war with yeah. China is going to impact my livelihood, it's going to impact their livelihood, and we're both going to put pressure on our governments not to let that happen. And furthermore, the more I trade with someone in China, the more I come to regard this person as a human being. You know, I get to know the person, this sort of thing. And the less apt I am to buy the rhetoric of the Chinese as the enemy. I think that's all right. But we've got to separate out a lot of different variables here. And it'd be interesting to start doing that. In the end, I think we can all agree that trade is the thing that softens men. Yeah. This was the argument in the Federalist in 1787. Tocqueville, mid-19th century, had some observations very much like this. When people trade, they come to understand each other as human beings. And when they understand each other as human beings, they behave much better towards one another. 
it's almost an institutional mechanism that tells everybody, just be nice to each other. And on that happy note, we're all done here. Join us next week for something fascinating. Don't know what, but it'll be fascinating. Until then, follow our Twitter accounts. The handles are in the show notes. Keep that email coming. Words and numbers podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, you should all know that Anthony was good enough to auto-forward these to my account, so I can't escape them no matter what. My wife has discovered Words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com, and she now regards Words and Numbers as her personal podcast. So I understand she's been peppering you with episode requests. Yes, that is correct. And Anthony lets us all understand that his wife is she who must be obeyed. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to have to do that. In the meantime, though, you can take a little bit of the heat off us by visiting our Patreon page. Anthony, tell them how to get there. You can find us at patreon.com slash words and numbers, and we appreciate whatever contribution you are able to make. We really do, because we've got expenses here, and they kind of hurt. So if anything you could do, would be most appreciated, and we'll send you bonus material week in and week out. Ant, you have a sparkling afternoon. <laughs> See you next week, James. 